To all my old friends, greetings from the University of California in Irvine. I am Tani Tenuville, the resident KUCI Middle Earth Elf. Welcome to What Would Arwen Do this fair Tuesday, March 11th, 2014. And here we are right in the middle of the month of, well, March is one of my favorite months because it has so many things in it. It's the first of spring. It's got the Irish celebrations going on for St. Patrick's Day. Generally, Lent starts in this time, so that's time, season of reflection for those of us uh, who are Christians. And it's my birthday month, um, and it's the birthday month of several people that I love. So before I say one thing further, I want to say a very special shout out. Happy birthday to John Paul, who also is a host here at KCI. And I believe he might be able to come on the show with me on my birthday week show and do some readings. So it's actually the show that day will be March 25th, which is national or rather international, perhaps Tolkien Reading Day for those who are a member of Middle Earth fandom. So welcome, hello to any of my friends who may be listening online through our website at KUCI.org. You can always catch us there. We stream live 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and through iTunes, or you can catch us on 88.9 FM on your radio dial. And in case you miss a one of our talk shows, our public affairs shows, most of them are available on podcast through our website and many also through iTunes. So if you go to KUCI.org and go to archives, scroll down to podcasts, and then just select the show that you'd like to listen to, and you can hear some of the past programs. So I'm very excited today. Um, it's St. Patrick's Day, and I'm Irish, part Irish, Irish, Scottish, uh, English, and American Indian. <laughs> and there's probably some other things thrown in there somewhere along the way. But I, my heart resonates with um, most things Irish, especially the Irish culture and fairy tales and... Um, Dancing and drinking and having fun and laughing a lot. <laughs> I love Irish and Scottish dancing. And I love the music of Ireland, the harps and the bagpipes and all of that. And so March 17th is the day that many celebrate. It's 
uh, a national day in Ireland. It's actually a holy day in the church uh, in honor of St. Patrick, who was a great Christian um, in Ireland, was not born in Ireland, and we'll hear a little bit more about that interesting story. But he was in Ireland planting churches and um, doing lots of very good things. He was a good and noble man um, during the 40 years that he was there. So we'll hear a little bit of some Irish uh, from the Irish tenors. And, well, first a little bit of an introduction in case you are tuning in for the very first time, because this show is called What Would Arwen Do? Arwen being the daughter of Elrond, a elf king and lord of Rivendell in Middle-earth. And you can find out more about the tale of Aragorn and Arwen in the Lord of the Rings and in the appendix that's in the back that tells a little more but it's a it's a really much of a, a lot of the backstory for the events of the lord of the ring um because were it not for aragorn and um also arwen had the ring not been destroyed and aragorn helped in um overcoming the forces of evil then the fourth age the age of peace would not have been been, been ushered into Middle-earth, and most of the free peoples would probably have been enslaved by Sauron, his minions, and the dark powers of evil. So it's been almost 12 years. March 23rd, 2002 was the day I discovered, fell into whatever you want to call it, Middle-earth. It was, looking back, it was much like Alice falling down the rabbit hole, um, I went to a movie one night um, while my husband was in Chicago, was married at the time, and to see The Fellowship of the Ring, I kind of had missed it. I actually went to see it once and when it came out in December with a little girl who was nine at the time, and she was so terrified that I spent most of the show telling her when she could look and when she couldn't and had no clue what was going on. And then it was nominated for all these Oscars, one, I believe, for Best Musical Score <clears throat> and a few other Oscars in for 2001 and thought, well, maybe I should give it a second chance. And oh my gosh, my whole life was changed in so many ways and is still an ongoing adventure of my life as an elf. So in case you are wondering what this show is about, well, this is where I celebrate all things Middle Earth and ask if a if an elf lived today how would she as a modern elf celebrate and support the arts music her community and the preservation of earth its beauty resources and creatures things i think elves would certainly be concerned about the sustainability of the way we live <clears throat> and so i ask well what would arwen do what would an elf do so Today we're going to be celebrating uh, things Irish, and how does that correspond to Middle-earth? Well, in quite a few ways, J.R.R. Tolkien was a dear, dear friend of C.S. Lewis, and they were both the inspiration for each other. J.R.R. Tolkien once um, remarked, and I believe it's written down in one of his letters, that had it not been for his friend C.S. Lewis and the encouragement and support that he got from him, 
through the writing of The Lord of the Rings that it most probably would never have been published. And C.S. Lewis came to the faith through the conversations that he had with his friend J.R.R. Tolkien and, of course, the work of The God Who Never Deserts Us. But um, many of the things that he held, one is that all myths are lies, and Anyway, he has a very interesting essay called Myth Became Fact, which holds that the gospel is the greatest myth, but it is also a fact because it happened in human history. So J.R.R. Tolkien was English. C.S. Lewis was born in Belfast, so he was an Irishman. He did spend a great deal of time in England later um, in his teaching posts and things of nature, but he was an Irishman. And he was he belonged to the Anglican Church, whereas J.R. Tolkien was um, a member of the Roman Catholic Church. So we are in the time of Lent right now, which is the season in which Christians take time to reflect on the Passion of Our Lord, the events leading up to his uh, crucifixion and resurrection that we celebrate on Resurrection Day or what's called Easter Sunday, coming up in April. So this week, I have many places I go. I see it's all about the Irish. There's corned beef and cabbage everywhere and all those kind of interesting things. It's funny that the woman I live with, she was born in England and also married an Irishman from who was born outside of Belfast, uh, about the same area that C.S. Lewis was born in. And... He remarked to her one day, they uh, lived in England, Um, he went to Canada, she joined him there, they were married, they eventually made their way down to San Francisco, San Diego, and settled finally in Newport Beach, for which I'm very grateful, because she is one of the most amazing women on the planet, and I'm privileged to get to spend so much time with her. But she mentioned one time that John had said that he found it interesting, this tradition of corned beef and cabbage, because he said that growing up in Ireland, he doesn't remember ever having corned beef and cabbage. So, But we Americans love to create food for our celebration of traditions, no matter whose they are. Pizza, our Chinese food uh, dishes that we have that Chinese people haven't ever heard of. So today... We're going to hear a little bit about fairy stories and an Irish fairy tale. And C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien both were very fond of fairy tales. And they actually believed that um, fairy tales and tales of fairy, the land of fairy, were primarily meant for adults rather than children. That essay is going to be found in the Monsters and the Critics' other essays. And other essays, it was an Andrew Lang lecture back in uh, the 1940s. Let me see this copy. I don't have the exact date on it, but I'm pretty sure it was 1940-something when asked to write on fairy stories. So we'll hear a little bit about that. And we'll actually get to hear a fairy tale from Irish Fairy and Folk Tales. But first, I wanted to share with you some beautiful music. This song is actually, uh, I believe, like a theme song for Ireland, um, it's used in quite a bit of the um, commercial things, and there's copies that you can find of it on YouTube. I'm going to be playing a version today by Lorena McKinnett, from, and, which you may have never heard of, but she's she's a lovely, lovely singer. 
in the Irish and Celtic fashion. And one of her very uh, much older CDs, which I don't have my strong glasses on to see which what year this was from, but uh, it's one of her older CDs, has a black and white cover called, it's called Elemental. And the song is Come by the Hills. And so perhaps you can just take a little moment, take a little visit to Ireland while we hear the song of Ireland. And I would invite you especially to listen to these beautiful lyrics because to me it reminds me not only of Ireland, but of Elvenhome and perhaps even a little glimpse of heaven. KUCI in Irvine. beautiful voice of Lorena McKennett with Come By the Hills, the song of Ireland. Welcome back to What Would Arwen Do? I'm Tony Tenuvio. Today we are celebrating all things Irish and just having a grand amount of fun. <laughs> At least I am. So, Irish, yes. Uh, next Monday, St. Patrick's Day, and if you're like me at all, then sometimes, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm a little curious about why we do the things we do. As an elf, if I like to be mindful and intentional about my life, just be not just be doing things because, well, that's what I've always done, or I believe that because, well, that's what I've always thought. But I think it is good every once in a while to re-examine the beliefs we hold and see if they still work for us and the things that we do and see if those behaviors and practices still work for us. <clears throat> and so, especially with uh, traditions, a lot of times I look at them and I think, hmm, is this tradition still working for me? And many of you know that for me, the tradition of eating turkey on Thanksgiving no longer works. There's no reason to be slaughtering all those turkeys when we have so many wonderful other things to be grateful with and probably feel better the next day as well. So yes, I'm an advocate for the animals because um, I believe that by showing compassion and kindness to the animals, we also are doing a great service to ourselves and to each other. So St. Patrick's Day March 17th is celebrated in honor of St. Patrick. And you may be wondering, well, who was St. Patrick? When did he live? Why do we still, why are we still doing this? And so I'm going to read to you a little bit from, about St. Patrick, from a book called All Saints, Daily Reflections on Saints, Prophets, and Witnesses for Our Time. And a little background, St. Patrick was born in... <clears throat> Well, it was called, it was Roman Britain at that time. And this is around 389 to 461. So in the like 4th and 5th centuries. So this was quite a long time ago. Um, probably around the area of Kilpatrick, uh, Scotland. And um, his parents were Romans that were living in Britain in uh, charge of the colonies there. 
So March 17th is the anniversary of the death of St. Patrick. I'm going to read here a little one. It opens with one of St. Patrick's prayers. It says, Christ be with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in the eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. It goes on to say, thanks to the Irish diaspora, the Feast of St. Patrick is widely celebrated in many parts of the world. Admittedly, this celebration is more often an occasion for national pride than for reflection on the cause to which the saint declared, dedicated his life. Ironically, St. Patrick is much better known for his apocryphal achievement, having rid the Emerald Isle of Snakes, than for his actual accomplishments as a missionary. But even his great achievement, having established the Christian Church in Ireland, tends to overshadow some of the more personal and poignant aspects of his life. Patrick's mission to Ireland and its successful outcome is justly celebrated. But it is often forgotten that Patrick's first introduction to Ireland was involuntary. At the age of about 16, uh, the ages range somewhere from 14 to 16. He was kidnapped by Irish raiders, stolen from his home, a village somewhere along the western coast of Roman Britain. And, and again, his, his parents were Romans that were living there in charge of colonies and taken to Ireland as a slave. Previously, he had lived a relatively comfortable life as the son of a petty Roman official. This violent change in his life, as may well be supposed, was a shocking experience. He found himself sold to a local king who employed him in a variety of menial occupations, such as herding livestock on the desolate mountains of the north. As a slave, his life was not valued more highly than the beasts he tended. As he later wrote, I was chastened exceedingly and humbled every day in hunger and nakedness. And if you think uh, about it, at this time, Ireland was a land of Druids and pagans. This is a pre-Christian Ireland. Um, but he learned the language and practices of the people that held him, and he turned to God for help and comfort. So it says, at the same time, far from home and with little prospect of ever seeing his family again, he remembered who he was and where he came from. In particular, he clung fast to his faith as a Christian, whereas previously he had been relatively indifferent in his faith. Now he liked to spend his long days among the flocks, reciting endlessly the prayers impressed on his memory since childhood. All the while, he dreamed of escape. Eventually, after six years of captivity, so he's now like 20 or 22, six years of captivity, an opportunity arose and he seized it. And it is said that he actually heard like a little inner voice saying, now is the time. Um, anyway, going on to read from this entry, it says, his flight involved a risky journey of 200 miles to the sea. So remember, this was in 1400 something. So was, there was no taking the train. Um, imagine they walked where he found a place on a boat sailing for the continent. Thus, eventually, after many further adventures, he made his way back to his home village. The scene of his family reunion can scarcely be imagined, but uh, the young man who had now returned from the dead 
was no longer a carefree adolescent as before. He bore the scars of a terrible ordeal, but also the zeal of a profound faith. In the light of this faith, he was convinced that both his sufferings and his deliverance had been ordained for some divine purpose. It was some years hence that this purpose became plain. While living in Gaul, where he had traveled to study for the priesthood, he had a series of dreams in which Irish, Irish voices, the voices of those who had stolen his youth, cried out to him, We beseech thee to come and walk once more among us. At first his superiors resisted the idea of his return to Ireland, judging, among other things, that he lacked the learning and skills for such a dangerous mission. But he overcame their objections, and so in 432, by this time a consecrated bishop, he returned to the island from which Providence had once aided his escape. And that was March 25th, 433. So, again, in March, the month of March. Patrick's uh, 30 or 40 years, some, uh, some accounts give 40 years, as a wandering bishop in Ireland are wrapped in legend, but the scope of his achievements is a matter of historical record. Within 10 years, he had established the primatial see of Armagh and a network of churches and monasteries throughout the country, all in the hands of native clergy. He personally baptized tens of thousands of the faithful and ordained hundreds of priests. Although he was not all alone in his work of evangelization, his stature as patron of Ireland is well-deserved. But in a land that has been rent asunder by the memory of ancient crimes and, justices, and injustices, it should be remembered that St. Patrick was himself the victim of Irish injustice before he ever became the symbol of Irish pride. His extraordinary return to the site of his oppression, not to wreak his vengeance, but to implant the reconciling seeds of his own hard-won faith, deserves appropriate commemoration. The gospel drove Patrick to return to his oppressors, that he might devote his life to their peaceful conversion and the cause of their salvation. But this spiritual conquest of Ireland followed the prior victory of love over the anger and bitterness in his own heart. And um, so it, it also, in one thing I read, it said, well, what is the thing with shamrocks? Why do we have shamrocks on St. Patrick's Day? And it was said that Patrick used the shamrock, which has three um, leaves, except for the lucky shamrocks that have four leaves. So the shamrock with his three leaves, he used these to explain the Trinity, which is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And uh, this, so the shamrock has been associated with him and with Ireland since that time, so since 4th and 5th century. Long, long time. Um, like 1,500 years. So yes, that's some pretty much the story of St. Patrick. And we're going to ha hear a little bit of traditional Irish music when Irish eyes are smiling. And we'll be back with some more um, hopefully fun and interesting things to think about as we celebrate all things Irish leading up to St. Patrick's Day next Monday. This is KUCI in Irvine. There's a tear in your eye and I'm wondering why for it never should be there at all. With such power in your smile sure a storm you'd beguile 
so as that never a teardrop should fall. And when your sweet lilting laughter's like some fairy song, and those eyes twinkle bright as can be, you should laugh all the while and all other times smile. So now smile a smile for me. For when Irish eyes are smiling, sure it's like a morning spring. In the lilt of Irish laughter, you can hear the angels sing. And when Irish hearts are happy, this whole world seems bright and gay. But when Irish eyes are smiling, sure they'd steal your heart away. beautiful Irish tenor voice of Phil Reagan with When Irish Eyes Are Smiling. Welcome back to What Would Arwen Do this Tuesday, March 11th, where we're celebrating all things Irish as we work our way toward St. Patrick's Day next Monday. So, as I mentioned before, J.R.R. Tolkien was very dear friends with C.S. Lewis, who was Irish. And um, both of them very much appreciated fairies and fairy stories. And I'm going to be reading in a little bit a cute little tale from Irish Folk, Fairy and Folk Tales that uh, was originally published in 2000... I'm sorry... um, 19, oh, where's my little paper here? Oh, well, I'll give you that information when I get to that book. First, I want to read a little bit for you from uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's essay on fairy stories, which is one of my favorite pieces of written work anywhere. And quite, quite, an, uh, quite long, but I'm just going to read a couple of um, paragraphs to give you a little context for the high regard that J.R. Tolkien held uh, fairy stories in, fairy stories as well as myth and legend. 
So this is the introduction from the introduction to his lecture given to the Ang, his Andrew Lang lecture given in the 1940s. He says, I propose to speak about fairy stories, though I'm aware that this is a rash adventure. Fairy is a perilous land, and in it are pitfalls for the unwary and dungeons for the overbold. And overbold I may be accounted, for though I have been a lover of fairy stories since I learned to read, and have at times thought about them, I have not studied them professionally. I have been hardly more than a wandering explorer or trespasser in the land, full of wonder, but not of information. He goes on to say here, um, a little bit later, the definition of a fairy story, what it is or what it should be, does not then depend on any definition or historical account of elf or fairy, but upon the nature of fairy, the perilous realm itself, and the air that blows in that country. I will not attempt to define that, nor to describe, to describe it directly. It cannot be done. Fairy cannot be caught in a net of words, for it is one of its qualities to be indescribable, though not imperceptible. Uh, he goes on to say a little bit later. Let's see. Uh, oh, yes. It is the mark of a good fairy story, of the higher or more complete kind, that however wild its events, however fantastic or terrible the adventures, it can give to child or man that hears it when the turn comes, a catch of a breath of the breath, a beat and lifting of the heart, near to, or indeed accompanied by, tears, as keen as that given by any form of literary art, and having a peculiar quality." So C.S. Lewis, uh, so J.R.R. Tolkien's works of The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, I believe more are, he called them a high fairy romance. And C.S. Lewis, of course, his tales of Narnia are very much like fairy tales. And I want to read a little bit from the introduction here to C.S. Lewis, The Weight of Glory, and other essays. And this, uh, Walter Hooper lived with C.S. Lewis for three months. And you may ask, well, only three months. But they were together day and night. On July 14th, um, C.S. Lewis asked him to be his uh, literary assistant and personal secretary. Uh, C.S. Lewis had been very sick. And this was at the time that Walter Hooper was in, with him in the hospital. He did come home uh, after that. But it says, um, I loved all the rough and tumble of this, and I fancy I pulled his leg about as often as he pulled mine. So in the hospital, um, C.S. Lewis would get la matches to light, to try to smoke. <laughs> and um, he would... Um, take them away because he didn't want C.S. Lewis to burn himself up. Um, he says, I loved all the rough, rough and tumble of this, and I fancy I pulled his leg about as often as he pulled mine. But there was the gentler side that was just as typical. There was one incident that took place in the Auckland Hospital, which the readers of his Narnian stories might find as endearing as I did. It occurred on one of those days when Lewis's mind was disordered and when, as I noticed, he could not recognize any of those who dropped in to see him, not even Pr 
Professor Tolkien. The last visitor of the day was his foster sister, Maureen Moore Blake, who a few months previously, and by a very unexpected turn of events, had become Lady Dunbar of Hempriggs, with a castle and a vast estate in Scotland. She was the first woman in three centuries to succeed to a baronetcy. They had not met since this happened, and hoping to spare her any disappointment, I told her that he had not been able to recognize any of his old friends. He opened his eyes when she took his hand. Jack, she whispered, it is Maureen. No, replied Lewis, smiling. It is Lady Dunbar of Hempriggs. Oh, Jack, how could you remember that, she asked. On the contrary, he said. How could I forget a fairy tale? And uh, so that was C.S. Lewis. And he did get better and go home. He did pass away uh, later that year in November, but left us with a legacy of many wonderful things to nurture not only our Christian faith, but also our imagination and creativity. So we're going to move now to... A little story that I got from my favorite bookstore in, um, here in Newport Beach, the Friends of the Library used bookstore. And, yeah, this was one of the ones that I got for less than a cup of coffee. And it's called Irish Fairy and Folk Tales, edited and with an introduction by William but- Butler Yeats. And I thought, well, well, wait a minute, that can't, how can that be? <laughs> uh, Yeats died in the early 1900s. And so this is the 2003 Modern Library paperback edition, but this was originally published in 1918. So that was when the uh, uh, W.B. Yeats wrote the introduction. The foreword is by Paul Muldoon and was written in 2003. And the what I want to take you to now is this delightful little story. There's a wonderful thing in the foreword about uh, fairy tales of Ireland, and um, he says he was he, growing up in the 1950s in North Ireland. I had any number of opportunities to experience the fairy faith. There's actually something called the fairy faith. Uh, Yeats actually wrote essays about it back then. My uncle Denny McCool had a lure for ringworm, had a cure for ringworm, and would happily have come under Yeats' category of fairy doctors. Our neighbor, Maura McFarlane, delighted in the story of a man who was passing the graveyard in college lands when he was accosted, then pursued by a ruddy poltergeist on a bicycle. After that, the poor fellow would run by the graveyard shouting the follow prayer shouting the following prayer. May God Almighty and His Blessed Mother and all the angels and saints protect us from bad men and bogeymen and we red things on bicycles. <laughs> Mara's husband, Jimmy McFarlane, would never have dreamed of cutting down a fairy thorn in his plower, plowing for fear of upsetting the powers that be. So we're going to hear, I was torn between two. There's one called The Haughty Princess, which comes from the fair, fireside stories of Ireland. Um, but I settled on the Kildare Puka by Patrick Kennedy, and this comes from Legendary Fictions of the Irish Celts, a Macmillan publication. A puka was a fairy creature that features in Celtic folklore and Irish fairy tales. You might be familiar with the puka in the 1950s movie Harvey that starred Jimmy Stewart. He was a giant rabbit, about six feet tall. 
The puka is also found in Scotland, Wales, and Cornwall. It is actually a changeling, so it can take animal or human form. And generally, it's considered something of a trickster, and it can sometimes be rather cap capricious or difficult. Often depicted as a fiery black horse, the Irish poet and playwright W.B. Yeats depicts the puka as an eagle, to which I respond, yay, more eagles. Like in Middle Earth, the eagles were quite noble, strong, and fierce. And um, so again, if you'd like to see a modern, modern-ish, 1950s movie about a puka, you can check out Harvey with Jimmy Stewart. So here we're going to hear about the Kildare puka. Mr. H.R., when he was alive, used to live a good deal in Dublin. And he was once a great while out of the country on account of the 98 business. But the servants kept on in the big house at Rath, all the same as if the family was at home. Well, they used to be frightened out of their lives after going to their beds with the banging of the kitchen door and the clattering of firearms, irons, and the pots and plates and dishes. One evening, they sat up ever so long, keeping one another in heart, telling stories about ghosts and fetches, and that when, what would you have of it? The little scullery boy that used to be sleeping over the horses and could not get room at the fire crept into the hot hearth, and while he got tired listening to the stories, Sora fear him, but he fell dead asleep. Well and good. After they were all gone and the kitchen fire raked up, he was woke with the noise of the kitchen door opening and the trampling of an ass on the kitchen floor. He peeped out, and what should he see but a big jackass, sure enough, sitting on his curabingo and yawning before the fire. After a little, he looked about him and began scratching his ears as if he was quite tired, and says he, I may as well begin first as last. The poor boy's teeth began to chatter in his head, for, says he, now he's going to eat me. But the fellow with the long ears and tail on him had something else to do. He stirred the fire, and then he brought in a pail of water from the pump and filled a big pot that he put on the fire before he went out. Then he put in his hand, uh, foot, I mean, into the hot hearth and pulled out the little boy. He let a roar out of him with the fright, but the puka only looked at him and thrust out his lower lip to show how little he valued him, and then he pitched him into his pew again. Well, he then lay down before the fire till he heard the boil coming on the water, and maybe there wasn't a plate or a dish or a spoon in the dresser that he didn't fetch and put into the pot and wash and dry the whole billin of em, as well as air a kitchen maid from that to Dublin town. He then put all of them up in their places on the shelves, and if he didn't give a good sweep into the kitchen, leave it till again. Then he comes and sits formant the boy, let down one of his ears, and cocked up the other one, and gave a grin. The poor fellow strove to roar out, but not a deed come out of his throat. The last thing the puka done was to rake up the fire and walk out, giving such a slap of the door that the boy thought the house couldn't help tumbling down. Well, to be sure, if there wasn't a hullabaloo next morning when the poor fellow told his story, they could talk of nothing else the whole day. One said one thing, another said another, but a fat, lazy scullery girl said the wittiest thing of all. 
Musha, says she, if the puka does be cleaning up everything that way when we are asleep, what should we be slaving ourselves for doing his work? Yes, indeed, says another. Them's the wisest words you ever said, Koth. It's meself won't contradict you. So said, so done. Not a bit of a plate or dish saw a drop of water that evening, and not a besom was laid on the floor, and everyone went to bed soon after sundown. Next morning everything was as fine as fine in the kitchen, and the Lord Mayor might eat his dinner off the flags. It was great ease to the lazy servants, you may depend, and everything went on well, till a foolhardy gag of a boy said he would stay up one night and have a chat with the puka. He was a little daunted when the door was thrown open and the jackass marched up to the fire. And then, sir, says he at last, picking up courage, if it isn't taking a liberty, might I ax you who you are and why you are so kind as to do half of the day's work for the girls every night? No liberty at all, says the puka. Says he, I'll tell you and welcome. I was a servant in the time of the squire R's father and was the laziest rogue that ever was clothed and fed and done nothing for it. When my time came for the other world, this is the punishment was laid on me, to come here and do all this labor every night and then go out in the cold. It isn't so bad in the fine weather, but if you only knew what it is to stand with your head between your legs, facing the storm from midnight to sunrise on a bleak winter night. And could we do anything for your comfort, my poor fellow, says the boy? Musha, I don't know, says the puka. But I think a good quilted frieze coat would help keep the life in me them long nights. Why then, in troth, we'd be the ungratefulest of folk if we didn't feel for you. To make a long story short, the next night, but two, the boy was there again. And if he didn't delight the poor puka, holding up a fine warm coat before him, it's no mother. Between the puka and the man, he got his legs into the four arms of it, and it was buttoned down the breast and belly. And he was so pleased, he walked up to the glass to see how he looked. Well, says he, it's a long lane that has no turning. I am much obliged to you and your fellow servants. You have made be me happy at last. Good night to you. So he was walking out, but the other cried, Och, sure you're going too soon. What about the washing and sweeping? Ah, you may tell the girls that they must now get their turn. My punishment was to last till I was thought worthy of a reward for the way I'd done my duty. You'll see me no more. And no more they did, and right sorry they were for having been in such a hurry to reward the ungrateful puka that little story from Irish Fairy and Folk Tales, which was uh, edited with an introduction by William Butler Yeats, forward by Paul Muldoon, published in 2003. I imagine you can probably still find it. And um, yeah, Paul, Mul Paul Muldoon is Oxford, Oxford Professor of Pro Poetry and Howard G.B. Clark Professor in the Humanities at Princeton. So, Irish fairy and folk tales, we heard a tale of a puka. So I'm going to play a little more 
music celebrating Ireland for you. This is a beautiful harp tune from one of my favorite harpists, Arya Frankfurter. And this is a traditional Irish tune. Actually, it's a traditional Irish dance, uh, Harp Chronicles, Volume 1. And I got several of his CDs uh, quite a few years ago at the Renaissance Fair, which is coming up in April, uh, down in uh, Felicita Park, a suburb of uh, San Diego. And I don't know if Arya Frankfurter will be there, but there will be lots of great music and fun and entertainment. And I'll be going down. It's This year, it is the last weekend of April and the first weekend of May, two consecutive weekends. So we're going to hear a little song, a beautiful little Irish song called The Butterfly. And this is a traditional Irish dance. In case you are tuning into the podcast, please know that we edit out all of the music. I will always give you the names of the songs so that you can find them later. But on the podcast, the music has been edited out for copyright purposes. So please bear that in mind if you are listening on podcast. But please enjoy today this music by Arya Frankfurter, a traditional Irish dance. This is KUCI in Irvine. of harpist Arya Frankfurter from Harp Chronicles, Volume 1. This is The Butterfly, a traditional Irish dance. You can find out more information if you like this kind of music at Lion Harp Music, his website, www.lionharp.com. And Arya very often is featured at various events which with his beautiful folk harp. And CDs are available through his website as well, I do believe. So welcome back to What Would Arwen Do? It's just about that time again. I hope you've enjoyed the show today and the celebration of things Irish. There are so many um, wonderful things to celebrate on St. Patrick's Day, the gifts of the Irish. There's a wonderful book by Thomas Cahill called How the Irish Saved Civilization that uh, is quite fascinating. You might want to pick that up if you'd like to get a little insight into the value of Ireland. Apart from its beautiful, beautiful its beauty, it is the Emerald Isle and its music and uh, all of the beautiful things that uh, we celebrate around this time of the year. And if you are of Irish heritage or know some that is, I hope you will. Um, join in the fun. We Irish definitely like to have fun, as do we elves. So I'm going to leave you today with another little traditional song by an Irish tenor. And coming up at 5 o'clock, we will have the Blue and Gold Report. But to... And I'll be back next week. I have a special program next week. I believe it's going to be for two hours because Blue and Gold Report is going to be on a little vacation. And we're going to be talking about dragons and fun things like that. So I hope you'll come and join me next Tuesday, March 18th, here on What Would Arwen Do? Until then, please go out, give someone a big hug and a kiss, take time to tell the people 
um, that you love, that you love them because you just never know what a day may bring. And I hope you have a safe and uh, happy celebration this coming weekend if you are celebrating St. Patrick's Day or just celebrating the weekend. With that, I will leave you with Morton Downey singing My Wild Irish Rose. This is KUCI in Irvine. See you next week. Alin Lumen Amentialvo, a star shines on the hour of our meeting. Namaria. If you listen, I'll sing you a sweet little song of a flower that's now drooped and dead. 